Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Wednesday, November 29th. We're knocking on December's door. We're, what, about 23 days away from the winter solstice. Jesus Christ, it's just flowing fast. And I am getting excited for this time of year. Beautiful time to get some runs in. It's cool, but I kind of thrive running in the cold for some reason. I would always rather be cold than hot, so... This time of year is great. Obviously, it's not nice when it's just getting light when I wake up and it's already dark when I get off work. Not not ideal. But other than that, it is a great time of year. I was reading an interesting article yesterday and I totally agree with it. It was about how Christmas and the holiday season is kind of unique because, yeah, the music and the lights and everything, they bring a lot of cheer. But at the same time, there's a nostalgia. And the article was talking about this nostalgia and I absolutely feel this nostalgia, I think just for just for youth and just the really simple times. Like when you hear that Christmas song come on for the zillionth time you've ever heard it and you see the lights and you're talking to family and the decorations that have been up at maybe when you visit your parents that have been up since you were a kid or still up, it just brings you back to a different time. So anyways, the beginning of this actually is a recording from Monday. So don't mind if I talk about it being Monday. I was going to put the beginning of this out on Monday, but got super busy and wasn't able to record the rest of it. So I'm going to start with this clip, and then we're going to talk about a foiled assassination in the United States that could have been potentially done by the Indian government. And then I also want to talk about the most expensive cities in the world. I did this last year around this time, and I want to do an update because there are some interesting trends in it. Places, by the way, little spoiler, have gotten more expensive but also some of the places that used to be doing well are declining, and I think it's showing us some interesting global trends. We'll talk about that at the end. But first, here's my little, I guess my thoughts on Thanksgiving, which is obviously we're getting a little bit past that, but whatever. And then also my thoughts on kind of the ephemeral nature of progress and change and yeah, just some thoughts I came when I was on a doing one of my half marathons last weekend. So here we go. Yeah, I hope you had a great long weekend. Obviously, we had Thanksgiving. We had Black Friday. <laughs> Today is Cyber Monday. All of my least favorite things. Well, Thanksgiving's okay, but Cyber Monday, Black Friday. Soon we're going to have like Looting Tuesday or Chaos Wednesday. It just seems like it never stops. And also, the funny thing to me is, yeah, there are some good deals on Black Friday, no doubt. And there are some good deals on Cyber Monday, no doubt. But it seems like there are so many new consumerism-based holidays that it's kind of lost its glory. It's kind of lost its sparkle. It just seems like there's always a sale, <laughs> basically. And as we get over Black Friday, get ready to see the Christmas sales at your holiday Toyota or whatever else it's going to be. So get ready for that. But anyways, I've been kind of, I guess I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent about more political philosophy and just things that have been on my mind. Then we'll get into the events of the day because there are quite a lot. And what I mean is that I've been really thinking about the longevity of progress and just how time changes things and how sometimes progress ends. And I also think I could talk about the ephemeral nature of politics and political stature and political influence. And I guess I'll give a little bit of a backstory here first, a little bit of a background. So over the weekend, I did a couple long runs. And on the second long run, I decided to listen to Dan Carlin's new podcast. And so it's basically about 
when the Vikings went from being pagans to Christians and how a lot of the Scandinavian politics and history during that period really led to a lot of the reshaping and shaping, I guess, of what you could call modern Europe. And all of that aside, I downloaded it and was getting ready to start the half marathon and listen to it. And I read in Dan Carlin's Hardcore History notes, it said, listen to Thor's Angels before you listen to this. And I'm like, well, shit, I haven't listened to Thor's Angels yet. So I went and found Thor's Angels online. And I listened to about half of it. It's about four and a half hours, I want to say. I listened to about half of it. And it got really interesting. And basically, as far as I've got into it, he's talking about the, basically the misconception of the Visigoth, of the Germanic tribes that took down Rome. And then he also looks at legacy and existence and empire and how it's all waning and how ephemeral all of it is. And he starts it out by talking about it must have been interesting to be in Britannia in like 1000, 1100, because you have all of these like British, you know, Christian groups that are growing up and living among Roman ruins, but they don't know why they're there. The technology has been lost. They don't understand why they're there. But they just know that at one period of time, there was someone bigger than them, someone more advanced than them. And Dan Carlin talks about Planet of the Apes and the whole Statue of Liberty thing in this. And just for those who maybe didn't see it or forget, the first Planet of the Apes, what was that back 60s, 70s? I don't have it in front of me. But anyways, what happens is, spoiler, Charlton Heston's character basically the whole time thinks that he has landed on a different planet where apes run society. But at the end of the first movie, it does a panning shot and you see the Statue of Liberty, but it's, I would say like three quarters or maybe 66% buried. And basically this alludes to the fact that Charlton Heston has been on Earth the whole time, just what, hundreds or thousands of years in the future. And the idea is that the people that built the Statue of Liberty are long gone and the apes that now run the earth have created their own society but do not know why and don't understand what the Statue of Liberty is or why it's there and they've lost that technology. And that gets us back to hearing about, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of the Vikings. You also have the Christian British kingdom starting to grow around that time in the Isles. And it just would have been insane to me to be riding around looking at like Hadrian's Wall up in Scotland or sorry, in in North England. And then also looking at all of these crumbling just Roman baths, these crumbling Roman um, aqueducts. When I lived in Spain, I remember going to Segovia a few times and it was the same thing. You would see these aqueducts that were still running, but you assume that a lot of the people that ended up living there and a lot of the societies that were there just used them but never understood them. And I guess, long story short, I tr- I thought I was going to go on the run and listen to this podcast. And I'm not even brushing into the other stuff about the Visigoths and the Germanic tribes and how they were misunderstood and actually quite respectful when they sacked Rome. But that's probably, you should just listen to Dan Carlin for that. But anyways, I'm on this run and basically I spent the rest of it, I actually turned off the podcast halfway through and just started thinking about legacy and existence 
and impact and just how crazy it and and reversible prog- like progress and technology and just existence can be and how forgettable prosperity can be after a few generations and it brings me to the poem Ozymandias by uh, Percy Shelley Percy Blichet Shelley and I've, I've always this has always been one of my favorite poems of all time because I find that it's mainly a metaphor that talks about the ephemeral nature of influence and political power and legacy and just technology in a sense. And I think all of this made me kind of think about why I am into politics and why I also love to travel and meet with people that I'll never meet again. And it made me just think about the ephemeral nature of why I'm fa- like passionate about the things I do. So I'm going to read really quick Ozymandias. It's pretty short. And then I want to get into my thoughts on ephemeral nature and maybe why a lot of people that like thrive in ephemeral moments maybe want to work in politics. And I, I guess I should also say this, is that for those that are like, Alex, what the hell does ephemeral mean? It's, it's, a, it's something that lasts for a very short time. Transitory, fleeting, passing, short-lived, momentary. For me, it's basically that night when you're in a foreign city with people that you'll never meet again. All of you are having some drinks and talking and you're just vibing off of the conversation, knowing that the conversation you're having is never going to reoccur. It's never going to be recited. And when you all wake up in the morning, you're going in different directions. That's to me what an ephemeral moment is. Anyways, I will read Ozymandias. Here it goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and drunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that it's sculptor. Well, those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Again, this is just a very interesting piece. I think on how time and just the passage of time erodes and decays the most powerful of people and ideas and progress and works and empires. And basically Ozymandias um, refers to the ancient Egyptian pharaoh Ramses about finding a statue that was built by an egomaniac and years later you come back and find it just rotting and in decay and covered in sand. And I think that's a lot of how probably the British or the the people that became the British Empire felt about seeing these crumbling Roman ruins in the 1100s, etc. And anyways, I've written a lot on my own and whether it's um, in my journal or in my Instagram posts or when I talk to friends or in this book I'm slowly writing that one day I hope to publish, I talk about how I thrive in the ephemeral moments those fleeting moments, those transitory moments where you feel like there's nothing to lose but everything to gain and you want to just soak in the moment because you know it's not going to last forever. And I wonder if that's 
kind of why certain people flourish in politics. You understand that you're in a room with people that you'll never meet again. You understand that you just need to woo them and talk about a specific issue, whether it's passing a bill or getting them to support you. You know that it's all fleeting and you have a moment to do it and that moment can't be over quick enough for you or the other person involved. And I think it it makes sense where a lot of politics involves transitory change, trying to find momentary progress or trying to appease a voting base or trying to woo donors. All of these things are, are all of these things are ephemeral at the end of the day. And even if you have a lasting impact, it only lasts until something else changes it. I even think about the power of someone like Obama who makes the Paris or signs the Paris agreements with many countries in the world to curb climate change or him signing the Iran nuclear deal to limit them on, you know, developing a nuclear weapon in exchange for lifting sanctions. Those were big deals. But then they change in a moment once a new president comes. It just makes me think about how progress is something transitory. And it also makes me think about how the people involved in it thrive in ephemeral moments because even if the progress does become long-term, they're not always acting in that. So I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about this recently, and I wanted to start this podcast with that. And sorry, it might be a little longer than you were expecting, but I, I, I just... I think I'm a good source to talk about this is because most of my years working abroad in Europe have been just vibing and thriving in these ephemeral moments. I just, I love the, the fact that you come together with people, maybe in a bar or at a restaurant or at a club or just out on a street and you connect with all these people and you know that at the end of this, you're all friends, but you may never see each other again. And all this growth has happened, but for what? There's something just kind of, mesmerizing about that so anyways i will stop my ranting for you guys (laughs) we are done but there are some pretty serious things to talk about today so the coke network the coke organization you know the coke brothers it has endorsed nikki haley and i don't know if this is something huge to really talk about maybe tomorrow i'll discuss it a little bit more but what i do think is big is that this shows that a lot of the traditional neoconservative more libertarian leaning political establishment is backing her over Donald Trump. Now, if you're a traditional Republican or a traditional conservative or someone who believes in free markets and you're voting for Trump at this point, I think you should maybe take this as somewhat of a red flag because what basically this tells me is that the the traditional Republican movement, the traditional cut taxes, pro-business, anti-regulation side of the party, kind of the more financial, fiscal, conservative Mitt Romney side, it is now saying that Nikki Haley is going to be better for that. And this is really, I think, the beginning of, or not even the beginning, but just the continuation of quite a big schism inside of the conservative right. Because Trump is now literally, I think, representing a lot of the working class, more religious, evangelical, cultural conservatism, the nativism, the Christian nationalism. And Nikki Haley is now representing kind of the old guard, the Bush era, Romney era conservative. And This civil war, I think we've, and I don't want to say civil war completely because obviously it's not like a violent civil war or anything, but this complete schism inside of the Republican Party, I think this is a very glaring example of it. And I do think the Coke network and Coke industries endorsing her, supporting her is a good thing for her because I think this could be, this could at least lead some of the more 
wealthy, traditional, older conservatives that are more worried about taxes than culture war issues, this might be able to drive them towards her. And as I've told you guys again and again and again, I am not a Nikki Haley guy, but I am sure a Nikki Haley guy if it's between her and Trump because the pretty much every day Trump talks, I get more concerned about what would happen if he's reinstated or put it, you know, reelected as president. And so, yes, the Koch brothers, it is good for her because I think I think it's pretty clear now that she is not going to be some populist MAGA conservative. So she does need to consolidate kind of the neoliberal, neoconservative side, the 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 corporate conservative class, the elite conservative class. And of course, Trump's going to attack her for this. Tucker Carlson's going to attack her for this. We all know it's going to happen, but it is it is a sign that at least if if you're a fiscal conservative, you should probably vote for her. And maybe some people, the Wall Street Journal type of readers, maybe they'll take this seriously and kind of reexamine that if they were going to vote for Trump. And it, it, is, it is interesting for me to see that. And also staying on this for a minute, Mitt Romney gave a pretty interesting interview on one of the Sunday shows last weekend. And I don't have the clip here. I actually searched for like 30 minutes to find the clip. I could find the whole interview but I, I wanted to get to a specific clip in it, and I, I've read the transcript, so I'll just talk about what he said. But Mitt Romney, I think, gave his most damning indictment of Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy. And uh, he was on Nora O'Donnell's, what is it, a CBS show? Yeah, CBS show. And he basically said that any candidate of either party would be an upgrade over another term for former President Donald Trump. And to be completely honest, this is like him and Adam Kinzinger are the only two saying this type of shit. On Bill Maher two weeks ago, yeah, because there was a break last week, former Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who I'm a huge fan of, he said something similar. He said right now the Democrats need to win because the Republican Party isn't a healthy party and they don't believe in democracy, something I have said time and time again on this podcast. Me being on the center right, that is something I hold very truly. And Mitt Romney's the other guy doing this. And so he says that pretty much anyone would be an upgrade over Donald Trump. Now, then he goes, and I'm going to read this quote, The Hill has a good piece on it. It says, I'd be happy to support virtually any one of the Republicans, maybe not Vivek Ramaswamy, but the others that are running would be acceptable to me. And I'd be very happy to vote for them. The retiring senator said Friday in an interview with CBS's Nora um, O'Donnell, And then Romney goes on, and this is the interesting part, and this is something a lot of the other so-called never-Trumpers never say. Romney goes on to say something, I'd be happy to vote for a number of the Democrats too, he continued. It would be an upgrade, in my opinion, from Donald Trump, and perhaps also from Joe Biden. And this is interesting to me, so he's, and also it's not in here, he, um, he also says he loves Joe Biden, thinks he's a nice guy. Then he goes into how they disagree and he's too old. And I think this kind of centers around a lot of what Romney's book, A Reckoning, also talks about is where he talks about how we need a new generation of leaders, which I absolutely agree with. But this to me is something I wish more of the like Larry Hogan's and the Chris Sununu's of New Hampshire were saying is like, not just that Trump is bad and they want someone else in the party, but also that the Democrats are probably a better option right now too. See, the thing is, if you're going to call Trump dangerous, then you probably have to say, at least for now, it's a good idea to just go for the other side. Because at least 
at least they believe in accepting the results of an election, which to me is kind of an important thing in this uh, experiment that we've been running for quite some time now. So anyways, the one thing that does bum me out here is that he doesn't mention people like Ron DeSantis, because I think Ron DeSantis in a lot of ways could be just as bad as Trump, but in different ways, I guess. So I kind of, I kind of am detracting my previous statement, but basically, I mean, his, his views towards trans rights, gay rights, his war against Disney shows that he will always seem to pick the culture battle over just the sane battle, which is just like what he did in the Everglades, which was great environmental change. Also, what he did during COVID, keeping schools opening, open, sorry, great. Those type of things, good, but it shows to me that he would rather pick a culture war over um, a pragmatic issue. And so I just don't like the don't say gay bill. I don't like the weaponization of trying to find illegal immigrants, which he, which he was looking into back in May. I, I just find him to also be kind of petty. So I kind of wish Romney was like anyone but DeSantis, Trump, and uh, Vivek. But here we are. And speaking of DeSantis really quick, is he has a debate tomorrow night, a debate, whatever we're going to call it, on Fox News, on Hannity, and it's against Gavin Newsom. I will be watching it, and I'll probably talk about it on Friday because this is kind of the battle, like a tale of two experiments, a tale of two states. You have Florida, the Florida model, freedom, the freedom model, right? Where, um, where DeSantis is kind of touting one narrative, one way of life, one American vision. And then you also have Gavin Newsom in California, another huge prosperous state with a completely inverse vision of the future of the United States. I am very fascinated to watch it. Both of these guys, whether you agree with me or not, I totally think would love to be going against each other in a presidential debate right now. To me, this feels like maybe 2028 if Ron DeSantis doesn't humiliate himself first. So we will get into that. I'm excited to see what happens there. Not much else to say, though, except it does seem like governors have a little bit less authority than before. The Economist had an interesting piece on this that I was reading earlier, and it kind of made me think about how, look, like, yeah, these guys are both governors of big states, should have a lot of say, but then you have to think about how Kim Reynolds endorses Ron DeSantis and his numbers haven't gone up. She's just getting attacked by the MAGA base, getting attacked by Trump. And then at the same time, Trump is beating DeSantis in his own state and DeSantis is popular in Florida. Go figure. It's, it, it's, a, weird, it's a weird world we live in. But I just don't know if being a governor is enough to have this type of authority. But I am, I, I am excited to see how this goes, how Hannity deals with this, how the crowd deals with this. And I'm expecting Newsom to probably walk all over Rob DeSanctis just because of DeSanctis's previous debates, which are not great. And potentially DeSantis loses, Newsom wins, but also Trump maybe wins if this goes well for uh, Newsom. Anyways, let's actually get to the main things I want to talk about. You guys know me. I can go off on tangents for quite some time. But I want to talk about the most expensive cities in the world. I recommend uh, maybe going back to the episode I did oh, about a year ago now, and I try to do this pretty much every year because it's something that truly does fascinate me. As you guys know, I'm kind of a macro guy in terms of geopolitics, in terms of economics, and to me, looking at a chart of the most expensive and least expensive cities in the world and seeing the shifts from the previous year, I think can really help us paint an important picture of what is to come and even understand the political and maybe maybe conflict-based issues we're seeing right now. So 
To start, this is provided to us from The Economist and something called the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is the Research and Analysis Division of The Economist Group. Basically, it provides a really good report of five-year country forecasts, country risk reports, advisory services, research analysis reports, all of that fun stuff. Anyways, let's make sure, yeah, that's up. And what I want to go through, let's go through the most expensive places and the least expensive. So number one, we have Zurich, which probably doesn't surprise anyone who follows global affairs. Tied for first, we have Singapore. Not very surprising. At third, Geneva. Tied for third, New York. Then Hong Kong, Los Angeles. Then Paris, Tel Aviv, Copenhagen, and San Francisco. Now, right off the bat, my question is, Copenhagen is tied with Tel Aviv for eighth place. What happens to Tel Aviv is my big question, because from everything I've ever read about places like Tel Aviv, it is one of the most liberal, progressive, tech-invasive cities in the world, and you feel like you're in... I've heard it's the Miami of the Mediterranean, basically. So I'm really curious what happens to a place like Tel Aviv. Because I I just know that most of these indicators that we're looking at for this ranking are coming probably before 10-7, and before we're seeing people in Tel Aviv literally seeing rockets shooting off in the distance, And also before the PR, basically chaos that Israel's facing because of what I would call unnecessary bombings of locations in Gaza. That's a whole other story, but let's look at the least expensive places. At 173rd, you have Damascus. Not particularly surprising. Very unfortunate because at one time, Damascus was probably one of the most like artistically fascinating cities in ancient, in the ancient world. After Damascus, you have Tehran, unfortunately, Tripoli, Karachi, Pakistan, Tashment, um, Tunis, Lusaka, Ottomanabad, Lagos, Buenos Aires, and Chennai. Now, the only one on this list that actually fascinates me, well, there's actually two, Lagos, Lagos, however you pronounce it, Nigerian mega city. This one fascinates me because most indicators will tell you it's one of the fastest growing cities in the world, but its population density mixed with the rampant crime, corrupt government, and just threat of external forces, I think makes Lagos kind of a bit of a problem. But the fascinating one to me actually is Buenos Aires, capital of Argentina. I've been talking a lot about... Javier Millet, (laughs) the current leader of Argentina. The country from reports ranges from 150 to 200 percent to even 300 percent inflation. Argentina is one of those cases where both the left and the right have completely ruined the country, disingenuinely broke the country, and now people are just like, let's put in Javier Millet. And Buenos Aires, like Argentina is one of those scenarios that depresses me because at one time Argentina was probably the global, or not global leader, but the regional leader for South America. It was a global actor. But you see a huge financial crisis erupt in the 2000s. The IMF gets involved. 
super intense loans that lead to just a debt trap, lead to insane inflation, lead to insane payoffs, and now Argentina is in kind of a debt trap where politicians are not willing to actually address the issue. So I think that's why a lot of people are going, all right, Javier Millet, he's crazy. He cloned his dog five times. Whatever. It's better than the party establishments, I guess. And look, it's not really surprising that you see Damascus struggling based on Assad's just genocidal bombing and just quote-unquote war against rebels, which has led to hundreds of thousands dead. Humanitarian nightmare. Again, I always ask people, you are so focused on Israel responding to 10-7. Why aren't you focused on what Assad is doing to more than half of his population in Syria? But that's a whole other conversation for another day. But what I will say is that, again, Argentina, Buenos Aires being in that bottom 10 is surprising to me. But I think it shows, I I think actually, if you had to ask Alex, why did Javier Millet become the president of Argentina? I would say, look at that. Buenos Aires, which is, from every account I've read, a metropolitan, beautiful city. It's in the bottom 10, least expensive. That's because inflation has just destroyed Argentina. And people are desperate. From Mendoza to, well, Buenos Aires, people are desperate. So anyways, I'm going to read a little passage from The Economist that I think really sums up some interesting points here. It reads, the three biggest climbers in this ranking were Santiago de Cuetaro and Aguas Calientes in Mexico and Costa Rica's capital, San Jose. Beijing was one of four Chinese cities among the 10 biggest decliners in the ranking. That reflects the depreciation of the Remini and the faltering of China's recovery from the pandemic. Moscow and St. Petersburg felt the, fell sorry, the furthest, plummeting by 105 places to 142nd and by 74 places to 147th, respectively. The ruble collapsed against the dollar because of Western sanctions on Russian oil and high levels of military spending. Moscow and St. Petersburg also fascinate me. I would assume five years ago they would be in like the top 50 and now going to 142nd, 147th. Not particularly surprising, but kind of sad. In, like, like, in my opinion, invasion of Ukraine aside, St. Petersburg is a beautiful city. Moscow is a beautiful city. So much history there. And, and to me, it's a lot like Damascus in a sense of like, these are historically amazing cities that have just been decimated by politics, decimated by nationalism, and decimated by the evil of humanity. And it's, it's really sad to see. I mean, I am not, though, particularly surprised by Beijing, for example, or any Chinese cities, because I've talked about this before, but the Chinese housing bubble is troubling the amount of buildup, the Chinese economy, not great. And I I do think that if we were to see a housing crisis that could lead to a global recession or any sort of global breakdown, it would be the mix of China's lockdowns with the pandemic mixed with China's attempted booming housing market with what we're seeing as a depreciated market at the same time. And Yeah, Beijing, like, I mean, I think every indicator you could ever look at would show that China is not doing well. So anyways, a year ago, I looked at this and 
it seems mainly like the 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 key cities are the same though I will note San Francisco as I recall was at least in the top 10 or close not there now let's see San Francisco 86 let's click on San Francisco yep 86 Los Angeles still still doing okay still doing okay but San Francisco a huge drop I'm also looking at yeah Vancouver significant drop as well interesting stuff interesting stuff and I I think all of this is not particularly surprising when you think about El Nino coming it began in June of last year continues into this year that could push up food prices in a lot of the global south and into the global north obviously because it's all connected and also you look at the Israel Hamas war which has which I mean hasn't directly spread across the Middle East but it definitely could we also look at economic constraints we look at interest rates which are unlikely to go down we look at energy prices going up like basically the beautiful cities that can basically evade reality they're going to stay on top so let's go back to the top 10 for a second yeah zurich singapore geneva those are the top three they can evade reality new york is tied with geneva for third i'm curious what happens with new york going forward my prediction is New York drops. My also prediction is Los Angeles, which is at 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 6th place. I, th- I see Los Angeles dropping. I see Tel Aviv dropping just because of the public image of Israel's conflict with, with, with Hamas. And Israel is kind of losing the culture war. Whether you agree or not, that seems to be what's happening. I don't disagree with the main narrative, but I do think Israel could just send in a special force unit to fucking go in the tunnels as I've said before, because siege warfare doesn't work, it turns the population against you. Israel, over time, is going to lose global support. They already are. If they wanted to just take out Hamas, they would send in their best to do so. They would not indiscriminately bomb Gaza. Anyways, Copenhagen, I think, still does okay. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. But the world is such a changing place. That's why once or twice a year, I like to look at the most expensive cities because I think it's a really interesting and fascinating indicator into what's happening around the world. Unfortunately, our bottom dwellers are kind of always similar ones. You look at Lagos, Ahmedabad, Tunis, Karachi, Tripoli, Tehran, Damascus. Honestly, beautiful places. I haven't been to any of those. I've been to parts of that. I've been to parts of the world that are near there, but generally speaking, it's just too bad because these are generally pretty cities that just don't get treated well and also just are seeing the brunt of globalization and of climate change. So we'll have to see, but this is my yearly checkup of the most expensive places. So do you guys remember this happened a bit ago, as in June 18th, there was Harip Singh Nihar, a Canadian Sikh leader, considered a terrorist by the Indian government, and he was shot dead by two masked men in Vancouver. And basically, <laughs> this created a chaotic shitstorm, is what I would say, is that 
I remember I remember reading The Economist back in September. It talked about how there was a deterioration in the Indo-Canadian relationship. September 1st, Canada paused talks with India at the G20. Mr. Modi, Narendra Modi, Mr. Trudeau basically did not talk much. Uh, the United States sided with this. This all related back to Sikh separatism. This guy was a Sikh leader. Basically, there was a bloody insurgency in India in the 70s and 80s. And it was a pretty violent point between the Indian government and the Sikh minority inside of India. And what happened is India let in a huge diaspora of Sikh individuals. And India accuses Canada of being soft on militant separatists because the Sikh people, I guess you could say, don't agree with the majority, uh, the, the majority Hindu government that governs India and has governed India for quite some time. And so you see a huge diaspora throughout a lot of the West. And Canada itself was the victim of the Khalistani terrorism in 85. Bomb blows up at an Air Indian airplane flying from Montreal to London, killed 329 people, mainly Canadians, and it was the deadliest attack in Canadian history. So there's a lot of there's a lot of history there. I hate to say history too many times, but here we're saying it history, history, history. But basically, like Canada has been a huge defender of the Sikhs, and so is the United States. I mean, there's some interesting articles about how actually California, in the Placerville area in a lot of the Central Valley of the uh, of California in the West Coast of the United States, there's a huge Sikh population. And much like how there's, you know, close to a million Sikhs in Canada that are courted by Canadian political parties, the United States has the same thing happen. And the reason I'm giving this background is because basically Canada and India have had a diplomatic row, to put it lightly, since then. And it looks like the United States may be next. I'm going to read this uh, little short paragraph from The Economist about what's an interesting foiled plot to assassinate a Sikh activist on American soil. Because it looks like the Indian government is getting a little bit too gung-ho about killing enemies around the world. The Economist writes here in quotes, America said it foiled a plot to assassinate a Sikh activist on American soil. Federal prosecutors accuse Nikhil Gupta, an Indian national, of working with an Indian government official to hire a hitman. The target was reportedly Gurntawat Singh Punun, an American citizen involved with a group pushing for a separate Sikh state. The, accus the accusation echoes one lobbied by Canada in September, which I talked about, and India denies. And this is something I talked about on that podcast, which I did on this, because... <sighs> I think I think India needs to be held accountable here because it's really not good when the government is using basically extrajudicial measures to target and locate people that they view as enemies of the state. Countries protect asylum seekers, diaspora seekers, people that have fled state-sanctioned targeting for many reasons. And I think that's kind of the beauty of the global order. Now, I have a lot of discrepancies with the global order and how things are running right now. But at the same time, I would argue that like part of the international order is that if you're someone who's targeted by your government, you have a legal ab ability to go somewhere else and be protected by their own law. 
if India violates that, and it, it seems to be the case that India has, then that's a pretty serious problem. And I think it was it was serious enough when it was Trudeau and Modi avoiding each other at the G20. I think it gets a little more complicated when you have Joe Biden and Narendra Modi trying to avoid each other at their next summit or their next meeting or whatever next global summit that exists. And that's because India and the United States have a very special relationship that goes back decades, half a century. And maybe that's maybe we're at the place where the United States can actually say like, Hey bro, you can't do this. I really, I really hope that's the case because I don't like the idea of potential alleged foreign nationals coming into another country and trying to kill someone that they view as a problem. Now, of course, to be devil's advocate, to play devil's advocate for a second, I don't know if you really want to defend someone who wants a separatist Sikh state, which, according to the Indian government, this guy wanted to do. That you don't want either. But all I have to say is you don't hear about a lot of Sikh extremism inside of the United States. But the Indian government does seem worried enough. And you do have the research and analysis wing, the RAW, which is India's foreign intelligence arm, which is the candidate probably likely of carrying out the assassination in Vancouver back in September. And this was carved out of the Domestic Intelligence Bureau in 1968, apparently with help from the CIA. And the RAW has focused on usually gathering intelligence in Pakistan and China, other neighboring countries of India like Bangladesh. And it's been accused, suspected, whatever you want to say, of conducting black operations outside of that region to influence India's neighbors and to arrest its foes. But it is a bit of a stretch to see it actually getting this far west. And I, I, I don't think we want to see this go further because it seems like the RAW is trying to emulate Israel's Mossad, which, if my listeners are familiar, famously does strikes, fr- s- strikes at foes from far off distances. And there's, it's really hard to find accountability from that far off. I mean, the international law is complicated. Just the, the proof of intent and just the proof in general of finding out who carries off long-distance attacks is very difficult. And I don't think we want this to be an accepted reality. So I'm glad that we stopped this. And again, I always say this as someone who is an internationalist, someone who does believe we need to work with our allies and some of our foes because I understand the world's not perfect and we do need to ha- like maintain and continue relations with people that we don't always agree with. I just think we need more rules. I don't think it's crazy to say we need more rules. I really don't. And if we're going to give you X amount of money, I think it needs to be at least linked to some sort of action. So anyways, um, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I'm not going to pretend to have answers to this. That's why I'm ending this now. I just, I don't like a world where governments are targeting people that fled them because of religious or political differences. I don't think we want to live in a world like that. I really don't. 
I want to live in a world where people are welcome, free, and just able to think and do what they want. Of course, not not insane shit, but generally speaking, yes. I, 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 I want a world like that. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. It is good news that the Coke Network endorsed Nikki Haley over Ron DeSantis. I think that tells us all we need to know about this. Let's watch the Newsom DeSantis debate or whatever it's going to be called tomorrow. I will sure be watching. I hope you guys do too. Anyways, have a great night. Adios.